Well, my auntie, my mum's younger sister, lived with my family off and on her whole life. Among many health issues that she had, she was severely impaired in her sight. Uh, She struggled with vision from uh, her early 20s. And during the last two years of her life, when I was around 11, she moved in with us full time because she had become clinically blind. Uh, My brother and I were very excited about this because we adored my auntie. And we showed this love to my auntie in a special way. Now that she was blind, for us as boys, this was an opportunity to hide things from her. We'd hide her handbag and she would be fumbling around trying to find her handbag. We'd try and hide from her when my parents were out, but she would find us because we'd be giggling. And she took all, all of this with tremendous grace because she loved us. And we knew she loved us and that's why we... Uh, We had that kind of relationship with her. She loved us and we knew that she loved us because she noticed special things about us. Perhaps things that had uh, been overlooked by even our parents often were the things that she noticed. Her blindness gave her an insight into my brother and I and I think people in general that she would not have had if she had full vision. Sight, eyes, and seeing are a theme in this epic narrative that's before us. We're going to start this four-chapter chunk about Samson this week. We'll finish it off in two weeks' time. Because Samson is driven. He's driven by what he can see, by what's before his eyes. We'll see that even though he's so driven by what's Before him, he's so unaware of what's happening to him. And we're going to see in two weeks' time for Samson, it's only at the very end of his life, when he is blind, that he begins to see. The promise of Abraham is the engine that drives the Old Testament forward. It's the thing that keeps moving the narrative from Abraham here to Judges and beyond. And it's the promise to Abraham around his children and his children's children, the blessing of children to inhabit this land, this land that the people are in now, that, now in the book of Judges. And so blessing was associated with the number of children that you had. Gideon? You know how many kids he had? Well, we don't know, but he had 70 sons, we're told back in chapter 8, verse 30, and as we imagine maybe 70 daughters as well. Jephthah, as we saw last week, how many children did he have? He only had one, and he kills her. And Samson has no children, and he kills himself. We're seeing just in these three people and their children in the book of Judges, a story, a story of the descent that Israel has gone into. And that's why as we turn to chapter 13, verse 1, it's no surprise for us. Why don't you turn to Judges, chapter 13, verse 1. It says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. 
You see, this is just par for the course. There's nothing particularly exciting if we've been reading the book of Judges here. Israel have sinned, nothing new. But this is a key verse in verse 1 because it really starts the whole narrative for the next four chapters to do with Samson. And it's key because it shows us the important themes that will dominate the next four chapters. And they are these three things. Firstly, evil abounds. Secondly, God sees. And thirdly, God saves. Seeing is important in this section in the book of Judges. It's important because it's, well, this evil that Israel does is not without God's knowledge. He sees. He sees what's happening here in Israel. He sees and he acts, as we're going to see, as he raises up Samson. And Samson is the same. He sees and he acts, but he acts in very different way. There are four acts or movements in this story. And there are, in fact, four women in this story. And the four acts or the four movements in this story correspond to the four women that Samson has a relationship with. The first three are nameless to us. The first woman that uh, appears in this section from verses from chapter 13 to chapter 16 is in chapter 13. His mum. The second woman is the Philistine wife and his wedding in chapter 14 and uh, following. The third woman is the Philistine prostitute, which is, the, I think, the third section in chapter 16, verses 1 to 3. And finally, the fourth section um, with Delilah in chapter 16, verse 4, following, which we'll look into next time. Look at in two weeks' time. This epic narrative is all about Samson, and yet, interestingly, we learn about Samson as we learn about his relationship with these four women. But Samson's story doesn't start with any mention of women, of a woman, but of a man. A man whose location is more significant than anything. Have a look there in verse 2 of chapter 13. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites. Here is the setting for the Samson narrative. We're on the edge of Israel, these loose confederation of tribes. We're not in the center. We're right out on the edge. It's the land bordering the Philistines. This is out on the margins for Israel, out in the wild southwest. And then we're focused not just on this region that's on the margins, but on this woman who's on the margins of her region. A woman carrying the shame and exclusion of being, as the NIV quotes it, awkwardly sterile, childless. A nameless, barren woman. To be barren in ancient Israel, was seen as a curse to a large extent because it meant that you couldn't, well, you couldn't enjoy this 
blessing that had been made to Abraham of your children and your children's children. It meant also that you couldn't carry the line of perhaps the Messiah. And so not to have children was more than just simply being socially unfortunate. It was seen to have spiritual connotations. And in this woman's state, in her tears, is really, is really the story of Israel. This is where Israel is heading from 70 sons to one daughter to no sons. Israel is heading to this kind of future, a future that's no future, a future where there is no fulfillment of this promise. But as we encounter this woman, we encounter the God who is at work, particularly in these kinds of situations, in the middle of pain, in the middle of hopelessness. The pain of some women's childlessness is often exasperated by others. Who can um, think of a, a, another story from the Bible where we have a woman who is childless and in sadness because of the situation. Sarah. Yep. Hannah. Yep. Elizabeth. Yeah. Um, often in uh, these other narratives, we have a, say, we, uh, um, Sarah, a mocking wife. But here there's no mocking second wife. There's just an unbelieving, ignorant husband for this woman to deal with. And this husband can't quite see what God is doing, but he doesn't have to. It's not important what he's doing. What's important is what God is doing. Verse 3, because she's told by this angel that remarkably she is going to conceive a son and this son does not just carry the hopes of this mother and her head held high in her community but this son is going to carry the hopes of not just his tribe but all the tribes of Israel verse 5 he's going to be a savior this is what Israel needs in 1 Samuel where we uh, hear of Hannah we hear her pleading before God, pleading with, before God but to, just to give her a son. But there is no mention of prayer here. There is no pleading because in so many ways the life has gone out of Israel. Israel has flatlined. And they're in this, this stagnation, this spiritual morose of depression and decline, of sin. And now, within this situation, is this, is this ray, is this ray of hope. And his name is Samson, which means little son. And you could translate it as Sonny. It's a very good name for a son, is it not? Why is a, a quarter of the story given in chapter 13, simply to his birth. Like it seems like a lot, a lot of judges, we just get one judge, Shangar, we don't even, we get one verse. Here, for Samson, we get a whole chapter about, well, 
about everything but him, simply about how he came into being. Well, one of the things to note in the next couple of chapters is who seems to be absent. It's as if God is absent. There's not a lot of mention of what God is doing in the next four chapters. And I think that's because we see what God is doing primarily. Firstly, here in chapter 13, that he is at work. He's at work, and when is he at work? He's at work in the worst of moments. Have you ever experienced that? God at work in the worst of your moments? Here God is entering into this state of rebellion. Here God is coming to his people to save them. And in chapter 13, verse 1, they're not even asking for a saviour. They don't even think they need a saviour. See, it's not often the invitation of God to work in our lives. That's an invitation that God so happily and wonderfully answers. But God is even at work when we're not asking for him when we think it's too far gone for him to actually help out, friends, we need to be reminded that God is at work and he's powerfully at work, whether we're asking him or not. He's at work in Israel. And we have much more reason to believe he's at work in us. This child's birth was special because his life was going to be special. He's uh, given this, um, these symbols of what makes him different. Did, did you catch that in the reading? Uh, that he's marked by this radical dedication, this Nazarite vow. Uh, this is a, a reference back to Numbers chapter 6, where um, people would um, dedicate themselves to a set period of time, and they could do this as a special kind of you know, reminder to themselves. They would have these outward signs. They would give up the, you know, the grog. They would not cut their hair. These were reminders to them of how dedicated they were to be to God for a period of time, but not so Samson. How long is Samson to be like this in this Nazarite state? He's to be like this from his birth to his death, which we're told in chapter 13. And so chapter 13 ends with so much hope. Here is the deliverer. Here is the, the one who's been set apart from before birth. Here with the signs of being set apart before him. Will Samson live out his calling that God has put before him in obedience? This is what Israel needs from this man. And, we're introduced, and, and the chapter uh, finishes with God gently stirring by his spirit there at the end of chapter 13 in his life. This is going to be great. And, you know, what do you imagine when the spirit of God comes and moves in a person? What do you imagine the next kind of scene to be? Like there is Samson praying and reading the Torah. But that's not what we get, is it? It's anything but that it couldn't be further from that as chapter 14 starts. You see, here is a man who doesn't know who he is, really. He can't see himself rightly. Some of the mums might say that's because his hair is too long. He can't see himself. 
We're expecting a battle scene. After all, Israel is under the rule and the tyranny of these nations. And here is this warrior that God has raised up by his spirit. But it's ladies' night because it's a romance that we get instead of a battle. In fact, the book of Judges started with a romance with Othniel and Caleb's daughter in this great match, this great pairing, this Israelite woman and this conquering Israelite man and brought a blessing to God's people back in chapter 1. But here we are a long way from chapter 1. We have descended. We have gone down so far now that Samson prefers to make love than war. He's roaming around the enemy territory and there catches his eye, this woman, and he sees her. And that's enough. Get her for me as my wife. He says to his parents, here is one of his most important decisions, arguably, made in an instant. And you can imagine from what the text kind of suggests here, his mother, you know, is trying to counsel him. Can't you just find a nice Israelite girl? And this isn't um, from... Uh, Samson's mother's point of view is simply a, a racial, ethnic kind of issue. This is one that has to do with God's promise. We're told in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, that Israelite men are to marry Israelite women. And Samson's parents say to him, there, must you go to the uncircumcised, to the people without the promise to get a wife? Yeah, I must, he said. I've seen her and I want her. For why? Because God has led me by his spirit to this perfect woman. No, because he was walking one day, he saw a woman, she's the one. Decisive but a fool. What's his justification? She's right in my eyes, not in God's eyes. Not in his parents' eyes, that's for sure. Right in his eyes. Right for me. And that phrase there is not unintentional, for she is right in my eyes. It's used twice to describe Israel. At the very end of the book of Judges, in chapters 17 and chapters 21, this is how Israel justifies what they do, their behaviour. They do what was right in their eyes, not God's eyes, but their eyes. Here is the self-determination of Samson. Here is the self-determination of Israel. And friends, we meet here because there is self-determination in our heart. We want to do what's right in our eyes, don't we? How often do we deliberately Consider what the Bible is saying before we make a decision. It's not something that we often do. Deliberately, consciously go to the Bible and try and understand what God is saying about our life and our future. No, because we'll determine what is right in our eyes. Samson is a depiction of wayward Israel. Completely and utterly sold out. He's not at war with the Philistines. He's in love 
with the Philistines, completely assimilated and therefore compromised. How could this happen? Like, I mean, what? Isn't it strange? Like, in verse 25, it says that God's stirring. In fact, in Samson's life, the spirit is most active, and yet Samson, arguably, is the most hopeless of all of the judges. Why does God bother raising this kind of guy? The work of the Spirit of the Lord in the book of um, Judges can be disturbing and confusing. And this is, uh, I think, most true in Samson's life. As with Gideon and Jephthah, the Spirit of the Lord comes. You know, last week the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah and then he made the rash vow that ended up in the execution of his daughter. How does that work? Firstly, I think we suffer uh, and we read a lot of the Old Testament assuming that the work of the Spirit in the Old Testament is exactly the same as the work of the Spirit in the New Testament. You know why? Because we don't understand the privilege of what it is for God's Spirit to work in us. God's Spirit is at work in us. In fact, it's more than at work in us. It dwells within us, God's Spirit. And that is a very different situation to the Spirit coming upon Samson. Because it comes upon Samson not necessarily for his sanctification, for him becoming more and more holy, but it comes on him to accomplish God's purpose. It's clearly not a gift for moral purity, but it's a gift to do a job. And we see that no more clearly than in chapter 14, verse 6, because the Spirit of the Lord rushes on Samson. He's seen this beautiful woman. He, he knows what needs to happen. He's told his parents, let's get it all happening. And there he is heading down to where this woman lives for the wedding celebrations. And as he's heading down there, the Spirit of the Lord comes on him and convicts him of, of his sin. No, the Spirit of the Lord comes on him and he tears apart this line that confronts him. It's not exactly a prayer meeting, is it? Spirit of the Lord coming. But it's tear apart a lion. Why is that? What is going on here? Well, we hear sometime later there in verse 7 that as he talked to the woman, we're glad that he did actually talk to her, he worked out he liked her, and then he went back to marry her. But as he's going back there in verse 8, in this, in this dead lion's carcass that he's pulled apart, perhaps days ago, perhaps weeks ago, is this swarm of bees there in verse 8. And what he does is he scoops out from the carcass the honey that the bees have produced. This is strange, isn't it? Odd detail. I think what's helpful is just um, is to see really that this is no simple um, travel story. That just as God was intimately at work to bring about his birth in particular circumstances, God is at work in his life. He's at work 
at his life for, for his sake, for God's sake. Because as Samson encounters this lion, something, a picture is being painted, a story is being told. Because lions are often symbolic in the Old Testament of God's enemies. They're also symbolic of God's enemies in the New Testament. Satan prowls around like a what? A lion. In Ezekiel chapter 32, we read of the lion of the nations. Here's the enemy. They're a lion. And here we learn that the one who God has empowered by his spirit has defeated this lion. And in this lion's defeat is the sweetness of honey. What does that remind you of? The promise. The promise. Here is a picture of the promise. This is how easy it could be for Israel. They could be enjoying the sweet, wonderful delights, particularly for our mothers. There was no sugar on tap back in the ancient world. Honey was the only way of gaining anything sweet. It was a precious and wonderful commodity. And here for Israel is a picture of how good it could be, how easy it could be. But this is, this is not where Israel at. This is what they could have so easily enjoyed. And so Samson is his ironic picture of Israel. We see all these parallels between Israel and Samson. Both Israel and Samson are called and gifted from birth for divine service. Both Israel and Samson have strayed from their father, their parents. Samson also fraternizes with the enemy just as Israel has. Israel has committed spiritual adultery and Samson commits adultery. He shows us what happens when the nation of Israel becomes far too comfortable with the nations that surround them. Because although you know, Samson has this tremendous strength, and we admire strength, they admired strength in the ancient world, we admire a more kind of nuanced form of strength, often intellectual strength in the modern world, Samson is so admirable in so many ways, and yet he's so flawed. He's his archetypal anti-hero. He's like an ancient Hercules or a modern Don Draper. Uh, if you've seen Mad Men. Thank you. I ha- he's this, uh, I mean, he's less well-dressed than Don Draper. Uh, he's, a, he's a wild man, old Samson, because for the most of Samson's life, he lives for himself. It's like we, we get this sense in the narrative that, you know, whenever he's around people, chaos happens. Um, my father used to say this of my brother. Um, you know, you, Peter, you're a walking disaster. Because, you know, your chaos, would, well, that's exactly what would happen with Samson. Because Samson lives for himself. And any benefit for others is simply incidental. One uh, scholar author says this, that he has superhuman strength but subhuman morality. He's human enough to be aware of love and yet too wild ever to experience it. See, this is Samson. He's got massive biceps but a small and weak heart. And yet, through this kind of man, God is at work. 
God is at work to empower this so fallen man. We see that back in chapter 14, verse 4. It says, his parents did not know this was from the Lord. So that is, when he sees this woman, right, and he wants this woman, his parents didn't think that this could come from God. But look what verse 4 says. The Lord was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time, they were ruling over Israel. See what God is doing? He's at work. He's at work through Samson. He's at work through this bullhead. He's at work through this man's evil. Because God is in total control of our world. And God is in such control of our world that he works not just despite men's disobedience, he works even through men's disobedience. Did you pick that reading from Acts chapter 2? When is God most at work in Acts chapter 2? When the Son of God was killed. What's the most evil event in history? The death of the Son of God. And God is at work, not despite that. God is at work through the definite foreknowledge and plan to work about his salvation. And so if God can be at work through the death of the Lord Jesus for the salvation of all who trust in him, God is also at work through this man, through Samson. Samson makes a bet at his wedding, a bet which he loses. And something for which this woman that was such an object of desire turns out not the woman he thought she was. This woman we discover in verses 18 was, well, she was the one that had tempted him. She was the one that had manipulated him. She was the one that had deserted him, betrayed him and dishonoured him. And Samson is angry. Samson executes his anger with 300 foxes in chapters 15 verses 4 and 5 as he brings chaos to the Philistine camp. See, God's at work. God's at work bringing about his purposes. God's at work even through Samson, his anger, his personal retribution to start to bring it to the enemy of God's people. And I want to finish just briefly with three observations, three observations that are are really kind of warnings for us from this story. Because they're warnings for us, really, what happens when God's people become too comfortable with the culture around them. Because I think at least three things happen. Firstly, God's people, when God's people become too comfortable with the culture around them, they become indistinct. You can't tell the difference between God's person and someone else. That was Samson. That was Jephthah. They looked in every way just like the nations around them. But God had given his people 
a mandate to be different, to be separate, to show the nation something by how they were different. And Christians historically have always been different. Christians have been distinct in, in particular ways. In the ancient world, in, in two ways, how they treated their bodies and how they treated their money. You know, in the ancient world, how did Christians treat their bodies? They reserved their bodies. They kept their bodies. But you know what they did with their money? They gave their money away. So often is it not in our modern world that Christian people, they give away their bodies and they withhold their money. And there's a challenge here for us. Are we distinct? Are we distinct? Or are we more like Samson, selling out, assimilating? If someone was to look at our lives, the way we, we thought about family, the way we thought about our time, the way we thought about the marginalised, the way we thought about money, could they tell the difference between you, a person whose God's spirit is working in, and someone whose God's spirit isn't working in? Secondly, when God's people become too comfortable around with the surrounding culture, they forfeit their salvation by avoiding confrontation. God's people did not want to go up against the Philistines, not because they didn't think they could beat them, but because I think it was just too comfortable with them. In fact, Samson is causing too much trouble for God's people. In chapter 15, verse 11, they, the, God's people confront Samson. They say, you're causing too much trouble. Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? And so what they say to Samson, this one that God has raised up to deliver them from the Philistines, God's people say to him, we're going to bind you and hand you over to the Philistines. You see, it is God's people who should be fighting the Philistines, but God's people have given up. They prefer to forfeit their salvation that God has provided. They prefer to live with the idols than to be free to worship and serve the true and living God. And friends, that's a challenge for us. How willing are we to, to forfeit that comfortable peace with our world how willing are we to forfeit that peace? And thirdly and finally, when God's people become too comfortable with their surrounding culture, they become blind to their need. God's people were bound under the tyranny of the evil Philistines and they loved it. There is no cry for salvation here. They were comfortable where they were. See, if you're blind to your need, how would you know that you're blind? Makes sense, right? Because you're blind. Here's one way. You stop crying out for rescue. We need to ask ourselves, are we crying out before God to be rescued from the idols that surround us? To be rescued by what we see and we want and is what is right in our eyes. Are we crying out to God? Are we just so comfortable? in this nice little world that we have. When was the last time you by yourself just cried out to God in repentance where you realised that the world had and has a grip on you 
more than you are willing to admit. Our culture has conditioned us. The culture, the, condi- had con- the culture had conditioned those that lived in Israel in the book of Judges. And that same culture is at work in our lives. But God is also at work. And just as God was at work in Samson's life, even through his sin, even despite his weakness, God is at work in us. He's at work in us to grow us such that we might know that he is a God for whom we can trust. Because thousands, a thousand or so years later, God, the people of God again became compromised. They didn't know, in fact, that they were enslaved. The Pharisees come and they say in John chapter 8, chapter eight we have never been slaves of anyone. And so hell-bent on destruction were God's people that they handed over their Saviour. And God used the free and evil choices of sinful people to bring about their salvation, to bring about our salvation. And so we need to be reminded of this God. Do you know this God? Do you know that you need him? Amen.